I'd encourage you to join me in Romans chapter 3. As we work our way into the book of Romans here, chapter number 3 is perhaps uh, one of the more significant chapters in systematic theology. When we work through this, we, we get an uh, understanding of our sin. So it doesn't sound like a great way to encourage you right now, does it? Uh, to say, that's our topic today, our sin. But an essential topic for us that we may know, because as we understand the nature of our sin, we get a glimpse of the love of our God. And it's an incredible contrast. So, chapter number three. Now, as we're working through this, I'm attempting one chapter each week. And uh, these things that we are gleaning from the chapters are fundamentals of our faith. And as we've gone through chapter one already, we notice that salvation is only accomplished by the power of God. We have seen in chapter 2 that salvation cannot be bargained for. And here in chapter 3, the depth of our sin makes it impossible to earn our salvation. The depth of our sin makes it impossible to earn our salvation. Follow along as I read through chapter number 3. There's 31 verses here. Um, some of it may sound a little bit heavy and kind of bog us down in our, our thinking as we go, but I hope that uh, by the time we're through, this will all be a clear chapter to us. Then, what advantage has a Jew? Or what is the benefit of circumcision? Great in every respect. First of all, that they were entrusted with the oracles of God. What then? If some did not believe, their unbelief will not nullify the faithfulness of God, will it? May it never be. Rather, let God be found true, though, though every man be found a liar, as it is written, that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. But if our unrighteousness demonstrates the righteousness of God, what shall we say? The God who inflicts wrath is not unrighteous, is he? I am speaking in human terms. May it never be. For otherwise, how will God judge the world? But if through my lie, the truth of God abounded to his glory, why am I still being judged as a sinner? And why not say, as we are slanderously reported, and as some claim that we say, let us do evil that good may come. Their condemnation is just. What then? Are we better than they? Not at all. For we have already, we have already charged that both Jew and Greek are all under sin. As it is written, there is none righteous, not even one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks for God. All have turned aside together. They have become useless. There is none who does good. There is not even one. Their throat is an open grave. With their tongues they keep deceiving. The poison of asps is under their lips whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness, who their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their paths, and the path of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we who, now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be closed and all the world may be accountable to God. 
because by the works of the law no flesh will be justified in his sight. For through the law comes the knowledge of sin. But now apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ, for all those who believe, for there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified as a gift by His grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus, who God displayed publicly as a propitiation in His blood through faith. This was to demonstrate His righteousness, because in the forbearance of God, He passed over the sins previously committed. For the demonstration, I say, of His righteousness at the present time, so that He would be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. What then is boasting? Or where then is boasting? It is excluded. By what kind of law? Of works? No. But by the law of faith. For we maintain that a man is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. Or is God the God of the Jews only? Is he not the God of the Gentiles also? Yes, of Gentiles also. Since indeed God, who will justify the circumcised by faith, and the uncircumcised through faith is one. Do we then nullify the law through faith? May it never be. On the contrary, we establish the law. Wow, what a chapter, huh? I want to set your focus on verse 28. This is our key verse that sums up, I believe, the essence of this chapter. For we maintain that a man is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. So let's ask for the Lord's help as we dive into this chapter. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for your word. There are times, Lord, when it's exceedingly challenging for us to follow, to understand, especially since this is not the context we grew up in. We are not from Israel. We did not grow up as a Jew. We did not have to contend with the law. But yet your word is pure and right and powerful, and it will accomplish what you send it out to do. And today we sit at your feet and ask you to teach us. Show us what it says that we might understand what to do for your honor, for your glory. We want an appropriate response to this chapter, Lord. So help us with it. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, here we go. Imagine, as we saw last week, uh, those who are trying to find some sort of advantage before God, and they realize that what they have to do is end up justified in His presence. How do you do that? Well, justified means that uh, there's no charges against you. You are blameless. You're innocent. You stand before Him, and you're at a right relationship with Him. How do you accomplish such a thing? What, what do you do? For many, it's, it's a system of certain works, certain manipulations, certain advantages that get us in a right position before God. And as chapter 2 has pointed out, it's easy to compare us who might be doing what's right, at least more right than the other guy, to compare ourselves with others. In chapter 1, toward the end, you got a glimpse of others. And it was not a pretty thing. And in chapter 2, there were those who started to straighten their lapels and stand a little tall and think, Hey, I'm better than they are, so I must have a better relationship with God. That kind of spills into chapter number 3. 
as we also saw at the beginning, and a couple of thoughts that just kind of popped up here on the page, it has to do with the advantage the Jews might have. If there were an advantage, what would it be? He says, well, they do have circumcision, which God has ordained that they should do that. So is that an advantage? Some think so. They've been given the law. God entrusted them with the oracles of God. Where did the prophets come from? They came from the Lord. They were of the Jews. Where did Christ come from in a, a natural human way? He was born of the Jews, right? They start adding up things and say, Hey, we are kind of special people. That's our advantage. We've got access to God because of who we are. And so Paul starts to address this. And he says, Yes, but... What about the fact that some do not believe? And he does say that, doesn't he? In verse number 3. What about those who don't believe? Does, does all the other things somehow give them the advantage, even if they don't believe? Circumcision, the oracles of God, all these other things are theirs. So, belief, well, that's just kind of a tack on, right? Not so important. That's not true. Matter of fact, it's turned completely around because we're dealing with the faithfulness of God in His Word, not the advantage of man. And so if we erase the concept of belief, you also erase the faithfulness of God. And so that's one issue he has to deal with. When he goes into verse number 5 and 6, he says, okay, so there are those who don't believe and they are under the wrath of God. And somehow God gets the glory for that. Now that's a big puzzle for some of us. How does God get the glory in that? Because God's faithful in everything, right? And he said, the soul that sins must die. And he says, they're under his wrath. And so somebody gets this wise idea that somehow, if we're unrighteous and God is punishing us and he's inflicting wrath upon us, is he unrighteous in that? No, he is right. God is right to do that. And so, God is wise. God judges the world. Okay, so, third question pops up. Well, you know, if I'm being unrighteous and it's bringing him glory, maybe I should just be a lot more unrighteous so that he gets a lot more glory. Is that the craziest thing you've ever heard of? That issue pops up an awful lot here. What if my lie, in verse number 7 he says, What if my lie, what if my lie brings about the glory of his truth? Why should I be judged if he's getting the glory in all this? Why shouldn't we do evil so that good could come of it? Well, all of these things here are manipulations for advantages. Trying to find a footing before God. Even to the point of saying, even my, my wrong is giving me a footing because it only shows how great he really is. And in a way, what are they trying to do? They're trying to flatter God. They're trying to think that, well, if he's feeling good about himself, then I'm going to be okay because I was the cause of it. Isn't that clever? How many different ways we try to manipulate to get a position to stand before him. And yet, when it all comes down to it, verse number 9 nails it right on the head. 
What then? Are we better than they? Not at all. For we have already charged that both Jews and Greeks are all under what? Sin. See that? Who has the advantage now? No one. We're all under sin. He said that very clearly. And in case we're confused about that, he goes to spell it out. Verse number 10, all the way through, uh, let's see, a big section here. All the way through verse number 18, practically. He goes to spell out the issue of sin. The reality of sin. Now, he started with the phrase, or I did, rather, in verse number 28. We maintain that a man is justified by faith before God. Not by the works of the law, apart from the works of the law. We maintain that a man is justified by faith. Now, that word maintain there, you might have the word, if you're reading King James this morning, we conclude. Logizomai is the Greek word here. To log it, to log it, what you have to do is you make your little uh, chart, you've got your columns on the chart, and you're going to mark it down in this account, You're going to log it, you're going to count it all up, you're going to add it all up, and you're going to find the results. So let's do that this morning. Alright? We're going to log it. If you're the kind who have to visibly and physically do it this morning, you're going to need two columns. Alright? The first column is what we attempt to do. And the second column is what God does. And this is an eye-opener. An eye-opener concerning man's attempt to manipulate the relationship so they could stand before a holy God. On the first column, you deal with the reality of sin. Let's see how it all adds up. It said in verse number 9, first item, all are under sin. That's not a good start, is it? All are under sin. So we mark that down. That's pretty clear. Verse number 10 is interesting, because if your text is like my text, perhaps it shows up this way in the the very font you're looking at. All of a sudden, it's all capital letters. It might be in italics. It might be some way set apart from the regular script. I don't know if your Bibles do that. Mine does that, because what they want me to notice is that these are Old Testament quotations. All right? Starting at verse number 10, moving all the way through verse number 18. Old Testament Quotations. You know what that simply says? This is not new information. God has already said this. When Paul's writing to the Romans, he's not creating theology, mind you. He's just saying what God has already said. It's pretty clear. And so what does he quote? Well, he quotes from Psalm 14 for one, and several other passages there. You might even have uh, margins and references to the text themselves. But this is what he starts with. Verse number 10. There is none who are righteous. we got to log that. Mark it down underneath the fact that all are under sin. And there is none. How many is that? There's a zero right there, right? There, are, there is none. Who is righteous? There is none. Okay. That means we can't stand there innocently. We're not correct. We're not righteous. Also in verse number 11, there is none who understands. 
Who understands? Interesting set of words here that compound together. It's to put things together, to be able to comprehend something. You know, sometimes you can explain something complicated to somebody and they're sitting there smiling and nodding their head. And that just simply means, go on, I'm not listening. <laughs> right? They, they, you know it, because if you say, now repeat that back to me. You teachers have done this before, haven't you? Repeat this back to me. They can't. Though their, their motions suggest that they might have understood, they did not understand. And this is kind of interesting about our sinful condition. It's that kind of sin that we don't even understand. We are so immersed in it, we don't understand. Now, I've never been in this situation, so I could only say what I've heard once before, is that there are those who, when they get very deep into water, and they get confused, they don't know which way is up. And some will actually will swim deeper down thinking that they're going up. Because there's a confusion that comes with the whole scenario. I think that's very much like the concept we have here with sin. They don't understand. They can't comprehend completely what they're, they can't put it all together. They don't, they're not, they can't really fully understand. He says there's none. Now, God would say that very dogmatically because He knows. There are none who understand. There are none who seek for God. Say, now wait a minute. I, I, I thought maybe I've heard of people who do seek for God. Who do seek for God. What do you mean? There are none. Well, God wrote this. What do you mean by that? There's none who seek for God. Well, to seek is to search out, to inquire, to, to make efforts, to strive, to obtain. And let me ask you something real simple. When you go back to the very first reaction of Adam, after he had sinned against the Lord, what was his first reaction? What did he do? He hid, remember? He went and hid. Why? Because he was seeking after God. No, he was not. He was not seeking after God. Sin does not bring us to God. It causes us to run the opposite direction. Have you ever noticed that? You know, you do something and, and you know it wasn't right. You do something and all of a sudden you got this wonderful urge to have devotions. Right? Or do you put it off a day or two? It's just shown throughout Scripture how sin does not bring us to God. We tend to run the opposite direction. Isaiah 53 made that very clear. When God looks down on us, He identifies the problem very clearly. He says, Surely our griefs He Himself bore, our sorrows He carried. We esteemed Him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. He was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being was upon Him, and by His scourgings we are healed. When I read that passage, words pop up on the page so clearly to me. Our griefs, our sorrows, what we deserved was smitten of God and afflicted, our transgressions, our iniquities, our chastening, our scourgings, these were ours. God knows that very well. Now the passage also says that He took that and laid that upon His Son, right? That's God's response to our sin. What's our response to sin? The very next phrase goes like this. 
we were so grateful. Right? No, you know Isaiah 53. All we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned everyone to his own way. There's our answer. For the realization of our sin, for the realization of what God can do to help us with that and fix that for us, where do we go? The opposite way. The opposite way. So, what's he say? There is none who seek after God. That's accurate. Matter of fact, the very next phrase, look at verse 14. All have turned aside. All have turned aside. They've deviated from the path. They've turned away to something or to someone, but they've turned away. That word is the same word we use for shunning. They shunned God. Isn't that incredible? They declined to go to Him. They, they declined to his, his righteous ways. They, they went out of their way to get away from Him. All. You see that word all? Powerful. That goes in the ledger, folks. I, I'm sorry, but it does. All have turned aside. So how are we looking so far? Our side of the ledger is not pretty, is it? He goes on to add this in verse 14. Together, they've become useless. <laughs> Start piling us up in one big heap. And he still says useless. The, the idea of useless is unworthy, worthless, spoiled. Not spoiled like you do to your grandchildren. Spoiled as in what that thing is in that back of the refrigerator that's been there for a month and a half. No good. Rotten. Altogether, that's what it comes out to. There is none who does good... There is not even one. So far, our look at the ledger on our side of this. All of us have sinned. We cannot act correctly. We run away from God. We shun Him. We go out of our way to make distance between us. We have rendered ourselves useless to Him. There is no goodness or excellence in any of us. Okay, you see that list so far, right? Now, that sounds like all bad news, and, and uh, there are those who say, well, we can fix that problem. We can fix it, because uh, um, we've got good things to say. You know, it's funny how people use good things to say to fix the problem. Let's say good things, or maybe that would be our solution. Let's make promises to make up for that list. So let, let, let's uh, uh, state our intentions to make things right. Let's gather up in little groups and make verbal pledges to one another that we'll avoid sin, that we'll act correctly, that we'll seek after God, that we'll be counted as useful. Let's be good. Let's have a powwow and make this work. After all, our words ought to be as good as a handshake, right? Let's use words. And of course, words are going to help us out here. But God has something to say about words. Verse 13. Their throat is an open grave. That's a tomb broken into. Folks, all the listering in the world will not cover up the breath that comes from this one. Their throat 
is an open grave. Ooh. That's not a good start. Their tongues keep on deceiving. Do you trust a deceiving tongue? Somebody deceived you once and that bothers you a great deal, doesn't it? They deceive you on a regular basis. Do you like that? Do you trust them? The description here concerning our tongue is a deceptive thing and it just keeps doing it. A deceptive tongue. The poison of asps is under their lips. That's an interesting word. In the Old Testament they use the word adder to describe this this, uh, creature. It's an Egyptian cobra, I believe. Uh, Somewhat small, exceedingly poisonous, likes to dwell in the holes in a wall. There's a picture of one who's running away from a bear and he runs into his house. I think it was a bear or a lion, but he thought he escaped and he leans against the wall of his house and the snake bites him. That's a very bad day, isn't it? But they were, they were, they were used to the concept that these poisonous snakes lurked even in the cracks of their walls. This poisonous snake lurks under the tongue in this description. And it's poisonous, yes. So what do we know about our tongue so far? You add it together. The source of their words are from the grave. The activity of their words are deceptive. The results of their words are deadly. Do you trust it? He's not done. Verse 14. Whose mouth is full of cursing. That's a word we use for imprecatory, imprecatory psalms. You've heard of those before. Those are the prayers that you lift up before God that He destroys all your enemies. This is the kind of tongue that constantly seeks misfortune for someone else. You can tell the man's heart isn't right when he does this. He doesn't pray about his own sins. He doesn't stand before God as one who's sinful. He just stands in judgment of other people and wishes them to be condemned. Would you like to listen to those kind of prayers all day long? I wonder how many are ascending before God's throne even this morning in parts of our world, people praying for the destruction of this person, destruction of that person, and all that in judgment. Their mouth is full of cursing. And their mouth is full of bitterness, verse 14 adds. Bitterness, the idea of piercing something with uh, a sharp item. You know, bitterness hurts us when we let it mature. But it not only hurts us, it hurts others when we let it mature. We're told not even to have the root of bitterness, right? Not even the root. But what if you got the full-blown weed? He says, this mouth here is full of bitterness. It's full of cursing. It's got poison. It deceives. It's an open grave. So, how about if we bring our mouth into the equation to fix our problem of sin? Let's say good things. Does it sound like it's going to work? Start to add it up. That's what we're called to do. Let's add things up. We're going to make verbal pledges. We're going to speak good things, but how can good things come from a filthy mouth? Jesus said, you brood of vipers. How can you being evil speak what is good, for the mouth speaks out of that which fills the heart? 
fills the heart. So, let's add this up. You take all of the sins that's recorded already in our list, and add to it the words of our mouth, and are we any closer to God? No. So there must be a better solution. So how about if we add something else here? If words don't make up the deficit, let's try actions. Actions always please God, don't they? Let's get our feet moving in the direction that corrects our course. What does God say about our feet? Verse 15. Their feet are swift. Oh, that's a good way to stop it. Right there. That sounds good, doesn't it? Their feet are swift. It doesn't stop, does it? Their feet are swift to shed blood. That's not the direction we wanted. To shed blood, that's a picture of murder, homicide. He said, but I've never killed anyone. What did Jesus say in Matthew 5? He says this, You have heard that the ancients were told you shall not commit murder. Everyone who commits murder shall be liable to the court. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother shall be guilty before the court. And whoever says to his brother, you good for nothing, shall be guilty before the Supreme Court. And whoever says, you fool, shall be guilty enough to go into the fiery hell. He even takes attitudes into consideration, doesn't he? Of course, you've never murdered anyone in your heart, have you? You haven't wished for a, a, a ray gun on the hood of your car to eliminate that vehicle riding in front of you that's been driving you crazy? You wouldn't think that way, did you? It's kind of interesting. The activities of man is not always visible on the outside. God sees the heart. God sees the heart. And sometimes you say, well, the activities of my feet, that will make all the difference in the world. God attaches it to your attitude. Here, he speaks in verse 16 of those who are walking and destruction and misery are in their path. Destruction. Is that building up or tearing down? That's tearing down, isn't it? It's not construction, it's destruction. This is where they go. They go and they destroy, they tear down, they completely ruin. And what do they leave behind? Misery, misery, wretchedness, calamity. It's left behind wherever they go. We're not talking about toddlers in your house. We're talking about the sinfulness of man in his actions. The actions and the results of the action, it destroys what is around them and leaves misery behind. The path of peace they have not known, verse 17 says. Peace is a thing that we identify when things are in order, they're tranquil, there's security, everything's put together in its proper place, there's rest. Oh, we like peace. We like peace. These feet do not go in the direction of peace. These feet do not bring about peace. Nothing is in the order of peace from these sinful actions. There's no tranquility. There's no security. How could sinful actions make us right before God? So, we've got our equation here. We took our list of sins that we've cited in this chapter already, and then we tried to add our mouth to make up for it, and we only compounded the problem, didn't we? 
So we said, let's add our feet to this, and maybe that will be our solution, and we have only compounded the problem. We have only compounded the problem. So, what else can we add? You know, they say attitude is really important here. Because you may not be able to speak well, and you may not be able to do things well, but attitude gets rewarded, doesn't it? I mean, after all, you might have lost the game by a huge margin, but if you had a good attitude, you should get some sort of respect for that, right? That's why we teach them. That's why we think. At least let's look at the attitude and give them a sportsmanship award or something. Attitude. Verse 18. This is one statement on attitude. There is no fear of God before their eyes. That's the attitude. That went with their mouth. That went with their feet. That went with the list. There is no fear of God before their eyes. No respect. No honor. No comprehension of how great He is. No fear. No fear. That's an attitude problem. <laughs> Alright. So, did you add all this up? Does it look good? Not at all, does it? Doesn't look good at all. What does God say? Hey, we're going to try our mouths. God recommends this in verse number 19. Shut it. It's pretty simple. But that's what he says. He says to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be closed and all the world may be accountable to God. Try the mouth, shut it. What does God say about our works that we're going to attempt to do with our feet? He says in verse number 20, that the world may become, or, I mean, because by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight. You can try and try and try. Hope for 24 hours in a day and fill every second of it with good things and you will never justify yourself before God by the things you do. Never. Never. You can't make up for it. That's a pretty potent statement, isn't it? So the feet aren't the answer. The mouth is not the answer. How can a man be justified? How can a man stand before God, acquitted, free of charges, vindicated, shown to be righteous, in a right relationship with Him? Well, our side of the ledger said we are sinful mankind, sinful mouths, sinful feet, sinful attitudes. Verse 23 sums it up nicely. You've heard it a million times. Maybe a million is not quite the right word, but close. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Doesn't that say it? All have fallen short of the glory of God. On our side, there's no remedy, there's no solution, there's no way to manipulate the numbers. You could add up all the facts here, and we have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That's what it says. If you want that in a phrase that we use in theology, we call it total depravity. That's where we are. That's where we are. Alright, that's our ledger. Here's the beauty of chapter 3, verse 23. Look at it carefully. At the end of verse 23, do you have a period? Or do you have maybe a comma? Literally, the sentence is not done yet. And I am so thankful for that. 
If it was a period, the story would be over. But because God does not leave us there, it goes on to say this, and it's very important, verse 24. Being justified as a gift by His grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus. He didn't leave us right there, standing in our sin with no hope. Rather, He goes on to describe His grace and His mercy. This is a part of the equation we must add. We must add this. It's the other column. It's what you have to see. Because it speaks of God's work. On the one side it was man's work and it was useless. Actually a big zero on that side. None is the key word. We had no effort to character, of words, of actions, of attitudes we could do. That's, that's all on that side of the list. But what we're looking at is justification before God is God's work. It's not ours. It's God's work. Let me show you what it looked like. His righteousness, verse 21. Apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested. He showed it to us. He could have left us wallowing. But He showed us His righteousness. And He goes into verse number 22 to describe it. The righteousness is through faith in Jesus Christ for all those who believe. For there is no distinction. This is God's righteousness by faith in Jesus Christ. Not faith in yourself. Not faith in your words. Not faith in your actions. Not faith in your attitude, but faith in Jesus. Only Jesus. Pretty clear? Only Jesus. That's God's design. The righteousness is granted to us who believe. Who are these believers? Verse 23, they're the sinners. All have sinned. They are the ones who have fallen short of the glory of God. But by a gift from Him, verse 24 says, a gift of His grace, they are justified. They believe. It's a redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Now don't start thinking, maybe this is what I get to do. I get to have faith and that's going to give me grace. Faith is a gift too. Faith is not mustard of your own because you don't have it. It's a gift from God. You'll see that in Romans 6 verse 23. It's a gift from God. It's something He's done. Ephesians tells us that in 7 and 8. 2 chapter 7 and 8. It is not by the things that we have done but it's a free gift by God. This gift is beautiful, folks, when you start to lay it out. It's a gift by His grace through Jesus Christ. See, what He did on the cross dealt with your column, didn't it? What He did on the cross dealt with that side of the ledger that was marked by our sin. He died because we are sinful people. He died because we have sinful mouths. He died because we had sinful actions and sinful attitudes. He died because we could not be justified before God unless He did that. But He did that, didn't He? He did that. You realize that His death was God's work? That was God's work. Verse 25, look at these words in 26. Whom God displayed 
publicly as a propitiation in his blood through faith. That means the cross and Christ on that cross and dying on that cross was a display that God set up that we might see. It says that it was publicly displayed. He as a propitiation in his blood through faith. This was to demonstrate his righteousness because in the forbearance of God he passed over the sins previously committed. For that demonstration, I say, of his righteousness at the present time so that he, he would be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Here's the beauty of it all, folks. Our list is horrid. But Jesus Christ paid for that, that we might be justified before God. We can stand before Him. Not in us, but in Him. His blood. His righteousness. Put it all in that column on that other side. It's God's work. It's not ours. Where's your faith this morning? Lying. Is it on column A and all that you can do? Or column B and all that God has done? You're in one or the other. Paul's writing this out so clearly. He says, there's no room for boasting in verse 27. How can we boast in this? If our salvation is not earned by one speck of our ability, how can we take one speck of the praise? It's all His. For we maintain, now I bring you back to the main verse. See it? Now you're going to see it. For we maintain, we've added it up, we've calculated it, we logged it, we numbered it, however you want to state this here. We have looked. And the equation for being justified before God is by His work alone. We contributed zero. We can only believe what God told us. When we come to faith, by the faith that God requires of us, we have nothing to commend ourselves, nothing to bargain with, nothing to impress Him with, no ability to gain a good response. Our beings were sinful, our track record was sinful, our attempts were failures, our soul was dead. We had nothing but God has everything. And He's made the difference. See what faith is calling us to understand? Your sins are taken and placed on Jesus. Your heart is made new to love God and to seek God and to serve God. Your feet are made new so you can walk in love and to walk in His ways and to walk in a manner worthy of the gospel. Your mouths are made new to sing praises to Him who saved you, to proclaim the excellencies of Him who moved you out of darkness and put you into His light. Your attitude is new. Your attitude should now be that you should be like that of Jesus Christ. You don't think highly of yourself. Why should you? But you do think highly of others, and you think especially highly of the one who saved you. That is the difference God has made. That is what He has done for these who believe. Because He says, apart from the works of the law, independent of all man's abilities and efforts, it's not my works that save me. Not my actions. Not my behaviors. Not my efforts. Only my Savior. Do you believe that? That's what Romans 3 is telling us. Powerful chapter, isn't it? 
powerful chapter. Are you a manipulator? Have you you've been working on this for a while, trying to add it all up before God, as if you're going to impress Him someday at the judgment seat? This is the answer. This is the answer. You can try all the works you want. It won't do a thing for you. You must believe. You're only justified by faith in Jesus Christ. I hope that's what you've come to understand today. I know it's a heavy chapter. I know it's one that really rocks us on the inside here, doesn't it? And shakes us a little bit. Because we're working so hard so that we might please God. And all the while he says, I'm pleased with what my son has done for you. Just believe it. So I hope that perhaps that's where we are now. We stand as sinners saved by grace. We stand justified before God on the basis of what Christ has done. Maybe there are some this morning who have never received Christ as Savior. You're still trying to do it your way. God's not impressed with the manipulations of man. You can't do it. Stop the fighting. Just have faith. Trust in what he said. That's the call that we all have here today. And maybe even as a believer, I know this because as a believer, I tend to do it too. I insert myself so much in the equation. I think maybe I'm going to help God out sometimes. And all the while he said, trust in what I have done. And it's a work that's being done in my heart, maybe in yours too. Maybe today this has been useful for us to see it the way God sees it. Let's talk to him about it. Lord, we are very conscious after studying this passage that the depth of our sin makes it impossible for us to earn a salvation before you. I am so glad that you did not leave it up to us to do it. I am so glad you weren't weighing in the balance our attitudes and our words and our actions that you were not counting on us to somehow fill that void. There was nothing we could do, Lord, and you knew it so well. So you gave your Son. What a precious thing you've done for us. The full impact of that still has not rested completely in our hearts. But to the degree that we understand it more today, we sure do thank you, Lord, for what you've done. Without Jesus, where would we be? Thank you for your love for us. Thank you for giving your Son. And our Savior, we come before you and say thank you so much for dying for us. For taking our sin upon yourself, as horrid as they are, and dying for us. And living again, that we may know there's hope in you. And Holy Spirit, we thank you too, for you're the one who's opened our eyes to see And you have applied these truths to our hearts and it's changed us forever. Thank you for what you've done. Lord, we do plead for those who might be among us who have never received Christ as Savior. May they be impressed with a very simple fact today. There is no other way to God but through Jesus Christ. And may they come to trust Him and Him only for their salvation. For those of us who know it too, may we live like it. May this be a very practical chapter for us, and may we start to live like it, that if I am saved by grace, I must also walk by grace. And it's not anything I could add to it. I trust only in you. Lord, do your work in our hearts. All of us have need. 
And when we come before you, you're the one who gives and provides and loves. And we treasure you for that. Thank you so much. In Jesus' name, amen.